The name John Calvin sends a cold chill down the spine of some Christians. The famous reformer seems cold, detached, and authoritarian due to his teachings on predestination, election, and his role in the execution of the heretic Servetus. But there's more to Calvin's story than meets the eye. What if we've actually misunderstood this famous figure? Dr. Peter Lilback of Westminster Theological Seminary joins us to shed new light on the life and theology of Calvin. This towering figure viewed himself first and foremost as a pastor and a preacher concerned with the Eucharist, missions, and even religious liberty. So join us as we get to the heart of the real John Calvin. You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm with my co-host Paul. Got an interview lined up today with Dr. Peter Lilbeck, who serves as president and professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck's academic interests include church history, the doctrine of scripture, public theology, and what we're going to talk about today, the theology of John Calvin. Dr. Lilbeck, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Brian and Paul, it's an honor to be with you, and this is the first time on That'll preach. So I don't know. Maybe we'll be preaching at the end of this dialogue. We'll see. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Very fitting. Very yeah. fitting. <laughs> well, one of the things that got me interested in having you on this show is your work on John Calvin. And you know, there's we're, we're, I, I kind of grew up during the neo-Calvinism boom where Calvinism was cool, you know, and everyone was planting churches and they were reformed and Calvinists. And after a while, I realized, man. You know, I don't know a lot about actually what John Calvin actually wrote and taught. So I got myself a copy of Barnes Noble. Actually, somebody gifted me a copy of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I read through it and I was like, man, he talks about a lot more than just predestination and election. <laughs> he actually has quite a broad selection of topics that he writes on. And that got me really interested in not only just reading his kind of systematic work, but his commentaries have been very helpful. I have a set of them on my bookshelf, and I've over the years really grown to appreciate how clearly Calvin writes and uh, how influential he is. And so want to have you on with some, as somebody who has poured his life into the study of Calvin uh, to talk a little bit about him. And we're doing a series on the Reformation mm -hmm. and uh, to really understand what it means to be Protestant and particularly reformed as Calvin is such a towering figure in that tradition. Mm. Um, so I'm curious for you, what got you interested in John Calvin? Well, it's an interesting story. I think I grew up in a Christian family. It was a uh, independent Baptistic from a post-Lutheran uh, immigrant. I'm finished by immigration, uh, second, third generation type thing. And but an evangelist came to town and they got born again. And so we were Baptists. <laughs> and but they encouraged us to read the Bible. And I must have been about 13 years old. And I was told for part of my boys brigade program, I needed to read the epistle to the Romans. That was really a stretch. But I got to chapters uh, nine through 11. And I said, you mean salvation is like a lump of clay and God takes some for salvation and others not? And I thought, wow, what an amazing, that is mind-boggling. So wouldn't you know it, that summer I go to a camp, and I'm with my camp counselor, the bunch of guys, and he's talking, and he asks a question, why is it that some people believe and some don't? It was just silence, and I raised my hand, and I said, you know, I think it's kind of like this, that human beings are like a lump of clay. <laughs> and God takes some, and he makes them vessels of honor, and others to be non-believers. And he looked at me and said, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> oh, I got shocked out of biblical Calvinism into instant Arminianism. I was shamed into it. Wow. And it took me on until I got to college in a Bible study on Ephesians. And I got to chapter one and verse four. And it says, you, he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I said, I was right. That's what the Bible teaches. Where have I been? And so I. That set me on a track to uh, try to figure out these things. And uh, somehow over time, through professors that were modified Calvinists, more Calvinistic, uh, reading J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And then really when I got to Dallas Seminary, I had S. Lewis Johnson, who is one of the 
really solid reformed exegetes, which in those days they were not comfortable with reformed theology. So he left like in my third year. Mm. But I heard a real exegetical defense of Calvinistic theology, and I've never been the same. I said, and I've just been tracking it. Finally, when I finished up at uh, uh, Dallas, I had begun to read the Institutes, the Westminster Confession of Faith, some of the Dutch Calvinists. And I said, I've never met a Presbyterian, but I think that's my people. I got to find them. So eventually I ended up at Westminster Seminary to do my PhD. And I was uh, so obviously I just kept at that point, I'd gotten a real interest in covenant theology because that's such a pivotal thing between dispensationalism, our Baptist brethren, pedo-baptism, hermeneutics. It's such a key concept. And I said, you know what? No one has really answered the charge. How covenantal was Calvin. You find the scholars I read at that time were all disagreeing with each other. Hmm. I said, well, Calvin's so important and no one's really solved this thing. I'll make that my project. So years later, after a lot of work, I produced a book called The Binding of God, Calvin's Role in the Development of Covenant Theology. And uh, I think I helped set the standard of what Calvin really said about covenantal thinking demonstrating a very direct linkage in the Zwingli-Bullinger tradition, right, to Calvin, that sets the stage for Levianus and Ursinus, and then later on with further federal theology. There's continuity. There's not identity at every point, but there's a whole lot more of covenant thinking in Calvin than most scholars gave room for. By the time I was done, you can read it through. It touches all sorts of interesting places where his exegesis and analysis brings out covenant thinking. So combination of covenant and Calvin kind of shaped my early years, and I've never quite gotten over that. I still talk about it to this day. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's who, who did you do your uh, doctorate under? Who did you study under in Westminster? When I came to uh, Westminster, the only program they were offering as a PhD in those days was in church history. Oh, and I thought, okay, I'll be a church historian. I, that's, that's what they offer, and I've got to find a place to connect. Yeah, And Claire Davis uh, was my professor, and Claire Davis uh, is, I wrote a, I helped edit a feshrift for him, it's called The Practical Calvinist, mm -hmm. that might be an interesting work title. with an anthology of writers, yeah. because he's a, a fascinating church historian, and an older gentleman now, but he, he basically said, Pete, go do your project, and we'll see if you can pull it off, and when I came back at the end, he said, I can't believe you did it, but you did what you said you're going to do, so... It was a, a wonderful project, but Claire Davis has been a friend through the years, and I appreciate his willingness to for me to take on a project that he thought was probably too big to do, but I was motivated enough to get it done, so I'm grateful. So you talked about the doctrine of the covenant. You talked about the working of grace and predestination. What are some other key contributions Calvin made to the Protestant Reformation? Well, you know, if you were to have asked Calvin, what will people believe if they call themselves Calvinists in the future? <laughs> he would not have said predestination. Why is everyone wearing all this flannel, too? <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would not have said, uh, uh, well, covenantal hermeneutics. He would have said they will call themselves Calvinists because of the Eucharist. Wow. Really? He understood himself to be the man who preserved the deep passion of Luther for the real participation in the body of Christ, in the, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, hmm. but not on Luther's exegesis, but on a Zwinglian, Bullingerian approach, which he would call then a spiritual presence. Yeah, That's where Calvinism really made its, its mark, because he was saying, I love Luther, I really don't like what I see in Zwingli, but, you know, Zwingli makes a lot of good points. And at the end of the day, he brings together uh, the Geneva and Zurich Reformations. And uh, in doing that, he helps to establish what we would might call virtualism or the real spiritual presence of Christ, that we participate in Christ by faith. Not automatically. It's not ex opere operato like Catholicism. Mm -hmm. It is not even the unbelieving eating because of the consubstantiation of Luther. But it is far more than a bare memorial, which is maybe what Zwingli might have taught at times. You can debate that. Mm -hmm. But it's often considered Zwinglian view. 
But Calvin said, no, we must say there's a real participation in Christ in the supper, hmm. but it's through the Holy Spirit through faith. Hmm. And so that would have been Calvinism to him. Now, obviously, he was excited that his uh, little book he started with called The Institutes got modified about five or six times and became the massive work, but it grew over time. But it was really his sacramental theology that he felt was what Calvinism was, at least early on. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because that's fascinating. It's an often, yeah. a, at least popularly conceived today, that's some what people think about when they first think about Calvinism. They think about, you know, election, predestination, all that type of stuff. Um, what, did Calvin understand his vision of the Lord's Supper as something that was historically rooted? Did he think he was doing something novel? How was he processing through that conceptual well, so what what I think we need to understand it answers several points. Calvin was trained in the humanist tradition, so he really tried to master the original languages. He was trained in law. He had a brilliant legal mind, and of course, he was a genius who was at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Love him or hate him. When you read Calvin, you say, "Man, does this man have mastery of words and penetrating insight?" And he could systematize in a beautiful way. And what made him so effective is that he made the commitment to really follow through on what we call sola scriptura. He said, I don't care. Let, let me let me give examples. He said, listen, I don't believe in the Trinity because of Nicaea. I believe in the Trinity because of exegesis, because I believe the Bible teaches this and we can demonstrate it in the scripture. So he found himself free to criticize the great a founding document of historic Christianity and still affirm it. Hmm. You know, in other words, he said, I'm a Trinitarian, not because Nicaea said it, but because Nicaea reflects what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And so that authority of scripture runs through all of his teaching. That's why uh, Calvin doesn't see himself as primarily a predestinarian, because he says, you know, predestination uh, is an important thing that you need to discuss, not in the doctrine of God, but when you're trying to explain Why does salvation work the way it does? So it shows up in book three of his mature final expression. Hmm. And so he, in the same way with the Lord's Supper, the reason he didn't see himself as being novel, he said, the scriptures teach us that we have a real participation in the body and blood of Christ in the Supper, and that we we must accept what the scriptures say, and this is what the exegesis demands of us. And so he didn't see himself as taking a novel view. He saw him saying, I'm finding what the apostolic revelation and the authority of the scriptures communicating, and that's where we're going to stand. And so for him, the confession of faith and the expressions of doctrine were attempts to codify what the Bible itself really taught. He recognized the confessions were derivative from an authority that had been granted. And so, so Right from the beginning, and as an epistemological structure, he will argue that the scriptures are self-authenticating. Autopistus is his word. When we read them, there are reasons to believe it far greater than rationality argument. The Holy Spirit writes the truth upon our hearts, and we're compelled to believe it. And so by believing the scripture like that, it's in the exegesis of God's word that we begin to develop the great doctrinal truths of the faith. So... Calvin, I don't think, ever thought he was novel. I thought what he was was saying, I am trying to be as faithful as anyone has ever been to what the scriptures themselves actually teach. So it's, I would say that's what makes him sound novel, because he may have interpreted scripture far more faithfully than a lot of people who ever came before him. He had the tools, the opportunity, and the time in history where he could use his unique training to bring together a systematic exposition of the original languages of the Bible and put that together into a marvelous system that he matured with as he continued to do his research. What was his view of the Lord's Supper? How would you explain it to like a lay person on that virtualism view? Okay, well, I think the easiest way to think about it is to go through the different views and just highlight it. So mm-hmm. if you think of the two extremes of, uh, let's say, the memorial theory and the Roman Catholic transubstantiation, For our memorial theory view, it's like when you're at a funeral and someone puts a portrait of the loved one who's gone. You're looking at a picture. They're not there, but you're remembering who they are and what they did. That's the memorial theory. 
Then you come to the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, and you're saying, it's not bread and wine anymore. This is literally the body and blood of Christ, re-crucified by a miraculous transition of the elements. It may not look like it, but that's what it is in its essence. It is transformed into a whole new substance. So in other words, one, Christ is not present. The other one, Christ is crucified, is absolutely present. Mm-hmm. Okay, For Luther, then, he said, I don't agree with transubstantiation. He developed the idea of consubstantiation, where he said, well, it's kind of like an iron in a blacksmith shop. He takes a piece of iron and he puts it into the fire. And before long, the iron comes out and the fire is in the iron, but the iron is not the fire. And when the iron was in the fire, it was still iron, but not the fire, but they're interpenetrating each other. Glowing red hot iron. He says, that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. Christ is in, with, and under the Lord's Supper elements in the Eucharist, which means whether you're a believer or not, if you partake of it, you're taking the real presence of Christ, his body and blood. It is So it's the with the substance. It's not been changed, but it is really present. Now, Calvin is going to look at all that and say, I don't want it to be just a bare remembrance. I disagree that it is a, a re-crucifixion of Christ. In fact, he'll call the Catholic Mass a blasphemy. That's how strongly he rejects that view. He looks at Luther and he says, I appreciate what Luther is trying to say. We are really participating in Christ himself. But it's not because Christ's earthly body is somehow omnipresent or ubiquitous or somehow appearing. Rather, what happens is the believer through the Holy Spirit is truly united to Christ in heaven. That in the Lord's Supper, we are seeing our union with Christ in a far more vivid way than any other time. And we are really participating with him by the Holy Spirit. And it's only what believers participate in. So I've used the illustration, and Calvin does it sort of this way. He says, it's like the rays of the sun. When the rays of the sun touch you, you're not touching the sun. But the sun is really touching you, and you're in real communion with it. And he said, that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. It's a full, sunshiny day where the clouds are rolled away, and the full glory of Christ is coming upon you, and you're receiving it, and you're really communing with it. Christ has not left his glory, but by the power of the Spirit, his glory comes to you, and you receive it. Now, just like the sun is always shining, even at night and even on a cloudy day, we always have communion with Christ. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, in Calvin's mind, it's like the clouds roll away, the sun is at high noon, and the full radiance of his glory comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And we really eat and drink of the body and blood of Christ by the power of the Spirit through faith. So he is what he's saying is, I'm saying yes to what Luther said, but not the way Luther said it. I'm rejecting Catholicism, rejecting the memorial view. But I really want to say we really do participate in Christ. And the text that says, is not the bread we break real fellowship in the bread of Christ? Is not the cup we drink real fellowship in the cup of Christ? He uses the word koinonia in the Greek language mm. when Paul is. So it's real personal fellowship. And it is a gift of grace by the Holy Spirit through the word, through the sacrament. So In Reformed theology, the sacraments are a connection of the sign and the thing signified. So there's the sign and what it signifies. And he says in the Lord's Supper, those two things come together in a powerful way. Mm -hmm. There's the sign and what it signifies is really present by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's where Calvin would fit. It's virtual, meaning it is a real, true participation, but it's not by any change of the glorified body of Christ coming to earth in the sacrament or a transformation of the elements, but it's the spiritual reality of our union with Christ received by faith that is a true participation in Christ's glory. So the spiritual presence theory is what Calvin would argue for. Hmm. I mean, this is this is super fascinating, and it, it brings to light that Calvin, Calvin is far more eucharistically inclined than I think a lot of neo-reformed people want to think about his theology. And sometimes you hear that on the Roman Catholic view, there's a prioritization of sacrament over word. And on the Reformed view, it's a prioritization of the word over the sacrament. 
And it seems like maybe some of what you're bringing to light here actually complicates that distinction. So do you have any thoughts on that characterization? Is that definitely just an oversimplification? Well, well, no, I think if Calvin would not have been opposed to uh, weekly communion in the church, Mm -hmm. uh, he had to deal with the realities of the Reformation and how do you uh, prepare people for the Lord's Supper? How frequently? Who's welcome? How do you fence the table? All the questions that yeah. for, a, for a godly communication. And uh, so, in fact, that's what got him exiled at the end of the day, is oh, that wow. uh, in the Reformation that occurred in Geneva, you know, he was compelled to stay by Guillaume Farrell that said, may the curse of Jonah be on you if you don't stay here. And Calvin was terrified and stayed. Hmm. He was planning to keep on going, but he stayed on. And because of his desire to fence the table and say, doesn't matter whether you're a magistrate or not, you need to be properly prepared, committed to the life that it's called. They said, you can't say that. We're in charge. He said, no, you're, the magistrate is not in charge of the Lord's Supper. That's the work of the church. Yeah. So he's beginning to develop what later will be called by Kuiper, sphere sovereignty. You know, there's a distinct role for the church, a distinct mm-hmm. role for the state. They should cooperate, but they're different. They yeah. have a different function. And the the magistrates did not like the fact that they were being kept from the supper because Calvin was that pesky Frenchman. So they booted him out and he ended up finally getting to Strasbourg where he wanted to go. And he got to be in there and met his wife and studied under Martin Butzer and all those sorts of things. Hmm. But in that process, it was precisely the Lord's Supper that he was trying to maintain. Now, I can't prove all of this, but I think there's a scene that has been recorded in history where Calvin bears his breast and said, let the knife go here first before you come to the supper. Wow. He was going to fence wow. the table from those that were not worthy partakers. Wow. So preparing for the supper. So it was a holy table. It was not perfunctory. It was not automatic. You don't get it because you're the magistrate. You do it because you are a true believer prepared to participate. Wow. So, you can see the Eucharist was very important for him. Yeah. Now, to have that high standard and you're trying to reform a whole city, to have weekly communion was no easy task. Mm-hmm. And so in the pragmatics of uh, reform theology, the question is, how do you care for the Lord's Supper? And the reform tradition has always said, well, you know, it says as often as you do this. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it does not regulate it in a, it must be every week, although it seems to be the apostolic function. They broke bread together, had the agape meal and would have the supper. Mm-hmm. So in the Reformed tradition, you have a variation from an attempt for weekly supper to monthly supper to bi-monthly to quarterly to a communion season, which yeah. is uh, what the Scottish Presbyterians did. We need to really prepare. So we're going to do it once a year. And we're going to stop everything. We're going to just repent, come together, and we're just going to commune as holy people unto the Lord, as a covenant people. So uh, the Reformed tradition has always had a very high view of the supper, the discipline that should go along with it. But its frequency of administration has fallen into the wisdom of each context because the Scripture does not compel us to do it. But apostolic practice seems to encourage frequent communion. Yeah. But then how do you do that with that high view of discipline? And so one of the things that will happen in the later Reformation are what are called communion tokens. So that you would go to meet with the elder and they would say, okay, you've repented. You've really, they would give you a token that you could come when the Lord's Supper, when you came to the table, you would give the token that says, I am welcome to come and participate. If you didn't have a communion token, you were not welcome to come. So there were all sorts of attempts to preserve. So you can see, while Calvinism is broader than the Lord's Supper, you can see why Calvin would have had in his mind a Calvinist in the future, someone that really takes the Eucharist very seriously. Mm -hmm. And so I like to finish Calvin's exile story by saying the Reformation nearly fell apart in Geneva and after three years. They asked him to come back. And, you know, I don't know if I'd have been a young preacher. He married his wife. He had a French refugee church. He's writing commentaries, what he always wanted to do. And he came back. I don't know how he could have done that. He had to be felt a compelling call. And according to the tradition, when he got in the pulpit, he picked up with the verse he had preached last three years earlier. 
to oh, wow. continue his exegesis where he where he'd been preaching. And so then Calvin now had an upper hand and he said, okay, we're going to discipline this church. You've asked me back. And he had won the battle. He was a costly victory. And as a result, uh, Geneva became, as the Scottish reformers will say, the most perfect school of Christ on earth. Mm-hmm. And from Geneva will flow the Calvinistic tradition all across Europe and from there to America and many other parts of the world. It seems like regarding Geneva, depending on who you ask, Geneva was like the model of what the golden age will be, or it is this tyrannical, yeah, disaster, despotic <laughs> kind of disaster. So how would you describe Calvin's relationship, or rather his theology of the church and the state? Because you start talking about the magistrate and his yep. role in that. What does that look like? Well, Calvin, you remember, he's a second generation reformer which means that he is working hard to figure out how to put all the pieces together. He's improved, I think, Luther in many ways. He's done more exegesis. He's more of a classical scholar. And he was uh, driven into exile as a refugee. As a refugee, uh, he found a place of safety in the Republic of Geneva. And so even though it was tough, he loved it. And he will say he believed that the most uh, satisfactory view of government is a Republican form of government. He liked the idea of a representative government with leaders, but still with the voice of the people engaged in different ways. So he loves Geneva model. So Calvin now, would have been a Republican today. That's what you're saying. He would have been a, he would have been GOP Republican. No, I don't know that he'd been a GOP Republican. He would be he would be a Republican with a small R. Yeah, yeah, and so. Calvinists had a lot to do with the formation of the American Republic. You know, they were very much thinking through the relationship of church and state and what is the proper accountability of power. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Calvin, if he was here today, he might look at both parties and say, we need to start a new party. They're so yeah. far removed from scripture that I can't go either way. Yeah. But that's another story for another day. Okay. Bottom line is that uh Calvin, as he wrestles with church and state issues, will recognize that there are different models. For example, when you're in Zurich, the belief was that you could not uh, excommunicate someone unless the magistrate gave you authority to do it. They believed in much more of a, a view that the uh, state had an oversight of the discipline in the church. And so that, that's one view. For Calvin, no, the state is not over the church. The church is not over the state. They have to work together in their respective responsibilities. So his view of government was an interesting one. Now, because he was a refugee, remember in the placard affair, he ran for his life because they they were going to kill anybody that did not believe in transubstantiation. The king woke up one evening or in the morning and he found a declaration of uh, reformed theology posted to his door. And he was furious, said, get rid of these Protestants. So Calvin had to flee for his life. And so he he was a as he fled, he reflected on religious persecution. And it's interesting when he writes the institutes, his letter to Francis I, the king of France, will be in every one of his editions, where he makes the case, I am not a heretic. Reformed people are not against the, the Catholic king. We are all we're asking for is the freedom to follow historic Christianity. And we want to be faithful subjects. Mm-hmm. So he is already wrestling with how does the Christian church fit together with the state? And in that context, he will say, I don't believe the government ought to persecute someone because of their views of conscience. Mm-hmm. He said they should protect conscience, even if it's not the official. He's beginning to try to argue for religious liberty. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, by God's providence, he will become a leader in Geneva. And as a leader in Geneva, he's working with the state. Mm -hmm. And there are laws that the state has to follow. And those laws include corporal punishment for the anti-Trinitarian. And this person who comes to town by the name of Miguel Servitas, the Spanish physician who's an anti-Trinitarian, well, they say, we found this guy. He's, He's in Geneva. We've arrested him. He's violating all the law of Christian Europe. He should be put to death. And Calvin is brought in. And Calvin now has an interesting point. He had argued at one point in his life 
the person that has a different view of conscience should not be persecuted by the state. Now he has a place of authority, and now here's someone who has a conscientious commitment that is not consistent with the state. What do you do? Well, Calvin struggled with that, and he recognized as a lawyer and as a theologian, anywhere in Europe, this was an illegal view. And he said, well, the magistrate needs to do what it does. But he pleaded for a clemency in the penology. He said, instead of burning him at the stake, please use the sword. It's much more merciful. But he said, that's the law. He does not argue for religious liberty for Servetus. Hmm. He says, we need to execute this man, but let's do it more humanely. Well, they, they burn him at the stake. They don't listen to Calvin. But as a result of that, one of the New Testament theologians that worked uh, with Calvin for a period of time, and they had some tensions for various reasons, there was a name, man named Sebastian Castellio. And Sebastian Castellio is one of those forerunners of religious liberty. He was Reformed. He was sort of Calvinistic, but not fully Calvinistic. He was a New Testament scholar. And he writes in his book, he says, look at Calvin. When he was being persecuted, he was in favor of religious liberty. Mm. Now that he has authority, he does not believe in religious liberty. Which Calvin shall we follow? Well, that was pretty painful. Mm. But that's the reality that Calvin had to wrestle with. How do you deal with the law of the land that persecutes someone who is really conscientious in their belief, but it's illegal to hold that? So Calvin is at, at that second generation stage of the Reformation, where he's working to systematize Reformed theology. He begins to recognize the church and state are distinct, cooperative, but he's not able to see himself fully toward a full liberty of conscience. I would hate to say this uh, at this point, but it really took the American story and all of our struggle in America with all the different traditions for the Puritan doctrine of conscience to catch up with the Anabaptist and Quaker doctrine of religious liberty. And so it is under John Witherspoon in Philadelphia, the, the great Presbyterian minister, who will say we need to change the Westminster Confession. The magistrate cannot call a synod. We need to recognize the distinction between church and state. And they recognize the right of conscience under the government while there is a full responsibility of maintaining doctrinal fidelity and orthodoxy in the church. Calvin didn't get there. He was sort of pointing the way, but not completely. It really took the American Calvinists and Quakers and Anabaptists and others in our pluralistic reality to figure out how do we work together where we are willing to live together at the points where we most deeply disagree in conscience but recognize civil liberties for all participants in a common society. So that's another story. If you want to do an American history story, I'd love to tell you about William Penn and uh, Roger Williams and uh, others along the way. But Calvin took a giant step that way by removing the authority of the state over the sacraments. Mm. But he did not fully understand how to deal with conscience, although he had hinted at it. But then when the reality came, the world was not ready for that. It took a lot more work to get in a new context to create the liberties we enjoy today. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. Mm. So let me finish by saying, wherever the Calvinist tradition has gone with their creeds, there is always a chapter on the magistrate that's included. So Calvin was a magisterial reformer. He believed that you needed to work with the government to have a healthy church that was distinct from the government, but yet cooperative. And that was part of their vision. And in Calvin's day, it included both tables of the law, the first and second table. Mm. And as that's unfolded in history, Calvinists have generally become more pluralistic and say, we have to preserve the rights of conscience about the first table. But if we compromise on the second table, we lose civilization itself. Mm. You know, the duty to respect authority and property and life and truth. And of course, in our day, the whole Ten Commandments are out the window. Yeah. So it is interesting that even with even with Calvin's imperfect implementation of conscientious freedom or religious freedom type principles, you get this this view at maybe it's more at the popular level today that we can trace uh, uh, liberalism and freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, freedom of religious belief 
to the Enlightenment. <clears throat> and then it's something novel that comes with Locke and Hobbes. Uh, but there are very deeply Christian roots to these ideas. And you get it even in Constantine and Lactantius. And this is happening in the first few centuries where Christians are at least toying with these ideas in a pluralistic society. How do you how do you allow for people to accommodate their consciences? And it, it, it was never fully fleshed out. And it was always practiced imperfectly and even is so today. But it's a deeply Christian idea. And, and people don't really realize how radical of an idea that 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 was. Well, a, a quick response that takes us from uh, Calvin a little bit later, it, when you come to the Westminster Confession, it will have a chapter on conscience. Mm -hmm. They're beginning to wrestle with the reality of the inward speaking of God's word to our hearts and our duty and how we need to respect. So there's an issue of conscience. Where it really comes to a head, interestingly, in history are in two, I mentioned their names earlier, Roger Williams and uh, William Penn, both of whom had been trained in Reformed theology. We often forget that, but Penn studied under Moses Amiro in Samur. So he had Reformed, John Owen at, at, uh, at Oxford. He, so he was exposed. He may have been exposed uh, to John Locke in some way. So he was a well-educated man. And uh, Roger Williams was a Reformed, and then he was a Baptist, and then he was a seeker. Mm -hmm. But he, he, was, he had Reformed theology in him. And both of these men were ministers, and they developed the idea of we need to create a society where the conscience is preserved. And I think the classic work to go to is William Penn's work on the great case of conscience defended. And on the cover of that book, he puts the biblical reference of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. I always like to say to people, do you know what that verse is? And everybody said, I, I can't quote it. And I said, well, have you ever heard of the golden rule? Do unto others. Oh, yeah, you know it by its, by its context or its other name, not its reference. Mm -hmm. And Penn's great argument was the, the freedom we want for ourselves, we must give to others. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. He was basically saying to the Anglicans that put him in the Tower of London, I didn't like that very much. When I create Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love, a biblical virtue, a biblical name, a city mentioned in the Bible, he said, I'm going to let you Anglicans come here in my city. I'm going to give you freedom because I'm going to do to you as I wish you would do to me. So whether we want to hear it or not, it's not the Enlightenment that creates religious liberty. Yeah, It's Jesus's golden rule applied to the public square by ministers of the gospel in the American context. Now, they couldn't do that immediately. It took conscience. It took opposition with state and persecution. But really, religious liberty uh, was a product of the golden rule coming from these people that said, we need to respect the differences. What a great accomplishment was to say we can have a common yeah. civil society, but we're going to give you the freedom to be who you really are. And then we're going to debate free yeah. speech. We're going to argue with each other. But we're going to give you the right to be wrong. Mm -hmm. We give you the freedom to dis to disagree. You're wrong, but you can be free to be wrong. Yeah. And of course, that creates, if you will, political liberalism in its classic sense. You're free to say what you want. I'm free to say, well, you can call me a fool. I'll call you a fool. But we go about our business together, trying to make the world a better place and live together. But that would not have been Calvin's initial. That was something that developed off of the springboard of Calvin. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I would say Calvin's great, great defense is one, coming to the thought that by the Bible is my authority, that I'm not doing church authority, I'm not under the church or the state's authority, I'm under the Bible's authority. Once you have biblical authority, then that moves toward freedom, because you say, well, then what does the Bible say? That's one. Secondly, it's in a sacramental teaching where he will say the state does not have the right to administer the sacraments, the church does. And thereby he carves out the distinctive right of the church to exercise its work. And also he had wrestled early on with the struggle of being a persecuted minority in a religious hegemony. Is there a place for a minority to have a right to be recognized? Mm -hmm. So he's moving in all the right directions but he was not in a place to make it work. It was too early. More things had to happen. But without those moves, we couldn't have gotten to the other stages. So he's an absolutely critical person. So can I put it this way? Calvin created the Model T of religious liberty. 
<laughs> okay. And you only yeah. and you only got and you only get the Tesla when you come to America. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, talk about Calvin and some of the misconceptions about him. I mean, you mentioned Servetus, and I feel like you talk about Calvin and a guy who likes Calvin talks about Geneva, and then someone who doesn't like him brings up Servetus and all that stuff. But what are some uh, yeah, mis- just popular misconceptions about Calvin that that you would like to see corrected. Well, I, I think I would put it this way: one is uh, to to give Calvin his biblical due instead of pigeonholing him into a single doctrine. Mm-hmm. To say what he did was an attempt to systematize biblically the great insights of the Reformation. In other words, he is not the predestinarian theologian. He is a biblical theologian trying to honor what the Bible says about all doctrines, that he understood them. So to see him as a, a, a biblically systematizing reformer, building on the insights of the first generation of the Reformation, that that would be a much healthier view. And even when I said if Calvin had identified himself theologically, it would be the Eucharist that probably defines what Calvinism is. But that isn't Calvinism. That's only a part of what he wanted, a biblical, thoroughgoing Christianity. And so I think it would be a wonderful gift to see Calvin as a man who is trying to take the Reformation insights, put them back into biblical authority, and consolidate them into a systematic understanding. Secondly, uh, this builds on my, my earlier work I was talking about to realize how Calvin is really the father of the biblical unity hermeneutic of seeing Christ in all of scripture. Hmm. You go back into the ancient church, Nicaea, you know, they, they didn't really like the old Testament all that much. And they were pretty angry at the Jews crucifying Jesus. And that had negative repercussions running through history Hmm. for Calvin. The old Testament is the word of God. It is inspired. And so the Jewish Hebrew legacy is something we cherish. We may disagree with these folks, but we learn from them, and we want to bring the bill to see him as a humanitarian that was changing the history of hostility toward the Jewish people, Mm. but actually recognizing their extraordinary contribution and giving us the major part of the Bible and the language through which God had revealed himself. We owe that to Calvin. Mm. That doesn't sound like an ogre. In other words, Luther was very troubled by the Jewish people. He was sometimes he would not, but many times he would. for Calvin, he was always grateful for the Jewish legacy and was trying to understand how we build on that. I think a third thing that would uh, be important uh, to understand Calvin is not only his uh, desire to see the biblical unity and then also the uh, full biblical systematician is to see his emphasis on what I call union with Christ. If there would be really one doctrine that would really capture Calvin best, I think it would be the idea as our absolute union with Jesus Christ. Uh, he There's a beautiful passage where he will say, as long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he accomplished is of no value to us. Every benefit we have is when we are in union with him. So if there is an overarching doctrine of Calvin, it's the idea of our being in Jesus Christ. And you can see that uh, in that passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's verse 20 and following, where he says, Christ has become to us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. Calvin will quote that verse almost more than any other. Hmm. What he's saying is, this is the heart of Christianity, is our being united to Jesus. And, you know, you almost think of Calvin as this cold-hearted predestinarian. Calvin is this warm-hearted guy that said, I want you to know Jesus. Yeah. So much so that he was the uh, driving edge of evangelism that was sweeping through France. The Huguenots were Calvinists. He was sending out missionaries that reached, I think, by the end of the uh, Reformation, some three million people in France had become Reformed Christians. Wow. And he was sending out people to go plant churches in France whose life expectancy after spending three or four years in seminary was about two or three years. Hmm. He was sending out martyr pastors to change the world. The first international mission work in the New World is in Rio de Janeiro. 
They were killed by the Portuguese. They were Huguenots that had come. Calvin sent them out. And then you have them also in St. Augustine, Florida. We think of that as one of the earliest settlements in North America. Those were Huguenots, Calvinists. I would hope we'd understand Calvin was a man who loved the gospel. He loved the truth of Christ, and he poured his life out to send people out to spread the gospel, even if it would cost their lives. He was the theologian of the martyr evangelistic church that sent out the good news to the world. We don't think of Calvin as a missionary theologian, but that's what he was. And it flows directly out of his love for the Bible and his commitment to union with Christ. And so wherever authentic Calvinism has gone, it's not like forget the lost, God's the sovereign elector. He'll get them saved if he wants them. No, it's how will we bring Jesus to these people with the good news? Why? Because Jesus is sovereign and his providence is going to bless the gospel wherever it goes. And the scripture preached will be self-authenticating. Those whom God is reaching are going to come to faith, which means we can't lose. Yeah. When we preach the gospel, God's people will come. We'll always be successful. And when people don't believe, we rejoice because God has chosen to harden hearts. I, I love the way John Bunyan put it in one of his writings. He said, uh, the gospel comes in the same way the sun comes to wax and to clay. It hardens clay and it softens wax, but it's the same sun. Mm-hmm. That's Calvin's view of the preaching of the word. Preach the word of God. Mm-hmm. It will do its work. It will always be effective to accomplish its purpose. Preach the gospel. Teach people about union with Christ, but teach them to be theologians, to see the whole Bible united with Christ in the heart of all the Bible. Jesus is everywhere. And so I would conclude with this. If I were to say, if there's one line of Calvin that I pe- wish people would memorize, it would be this. The covenant is always the same in substance, but distinct in administration. It's a very pithy statement. What, he, what he's saying is Jesus is always the substance of God's covenant work all the way through the Bible. It's always about Jesus. but the way. Jesus is presented varies from epoch to epoch is in the stage of the history of redemption. So under Moses, it looks different than under Abraham. Under Jesus, it looks different than under the prophets. And when you get to heaven, it's going to look different than it does uh, here in the church age. But it's always about Jesus. So there's continuity in Jesus, discontinuity in administration. And if we learn that simple thought, Suddenly, the Bible becomes a Christian book from Genesis to Revelation. And that's Calvin's great gift hermeneutically, pastorally, ecclesially, and missionary-wise. The church is always about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. We're teaching people how to read and study the Bible to spread the good word, which will bring people to faith or hardened hearts, if that's God's will. But we cannot fail because we have a sovereign God who's called us to reach the world in the name of King Jesus. I think that's Calvin. That'll preach. Right? That'll preach. That'll preach. That'll I'm preaching now. Okay. Right there, there you go. I love it. Well, talk about Calvin as a pastor, just the more personal side of Calvin. What was he like as a pastor? Well, Calvin uh, wanted to make sure the preaching of the word was primary in his work. And so he would preach multiple times every week. There would be morning and evening sermons that he would preach. And so that's why there's so many commentaries that he wrote, because these, these are the collection of his preaching that people were taking notes. Some he would have time to write. Others he would just get up and preach based on his research. And there were people taking those notes and copying them. One of the great tragedies, maybe uh, I think it's like 100 years or 150 years, uh, the library in Geneva has found all these old manuscripts that were taking up room in the library. So we need to get rid of all of this. And they threw away. All of uh, Calvin's lecture notes that had been preserved on First and Second Samuel, I think, you know, so they're lost. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize what a treasure that they had. But his pastoral work was exposition of Scripture, faithfully preaching the Word of God. And when you go through his commentaries, you'll find that it's filled with preaching in- insights, you know, practical application, mm-hmm. homey illustrations, clever word choices. He's trying to figure out how do we take this great theology that you find in the institutes and make it work in people's lives. 
He was a preacher. In other words, he realized what he wrote in the Institutes wasn't always uh, able to be consumed by the average person. He's preaching in a way that is very effective. So I think Calvin was a, a preacher preaching the word, trying to communicate effectively. And that what he often does in his sermons is he will stop, or let's say as they become his commentaries, he'll say, I don't have time to pursue this theological question. Uh, please consult my institutes. So his institutes were the point where he would say, okay, if I answer this question now, I can't finish my sermon. So <laughs> go look at over here because I study this at length and you'll get. So he's a, he's a pedagogue. He wants to teach. He's a preacher. He wants to communicate. He believes in the authority of the word as a pastor. So preaching is primary. But he realizes that the Lord's day, uh, when possible, the sacrament should be administered. And he wants to have a holy church. So there's discipline, and in fact, there's even discipline not just to come to the supper, but over the ministers and also over the congregants. So one of the things he creates is the idea of the preachers would get together maybe once a month, and they would preach to each other, they would talk to each other, they would scold each other, encourage each other. So the idea of the collective work of the pastor, not just pastoring kind of as a mini pope in a congregation as an independent, I'm going to do what I want. It's more like I need to come together and talk about what I'm struggling with, mm. hold myself accountable, share insights, figure out problems, create continuity in the life of the church. So he was a connectional pastor that had biblical authority in mind, and he wanted to make sure the theology of the church was in place. And so another thing that he did as a pastor is he said, you know, you got to train children in a way differently than you train older people. They have a chance to learn, memorize, and so he created catechisms. There's a whole Genevan catechism he wrote so that the uh, people could teach children the great truths of the Reformation. So he helped write confessions, so there would be a standard of faith. And then on top of that, as we've already mentioned, he said, if you're going to have a learned clergy preaching the word, you need to have a seminary. So the Academy of Geneva is established. So he's your ultimate example of a preaching pastor who believes that he should be a scholar at the same time. Calvin is your model of the scholar pastor. But then more than that, if I could add one other layer, because in the, his day, the government and the church were so closely integrated, he realized that he had a duty to talk to magistrates and government leaders. And when you read his letters, He's regularly writing letters to kings, to counselors, to magistrates, people in, that are reformers in other countries. And so he recognized that a true scholar pastor doing his work had a duty to address political leaders, to give them wisdom and insight for how they should bring the Reformation to bear in their context. So when people say, well, I believe in the spirituality of the church, we shouldn't talk about politics. He said, well, then you're clearly not a Calvinist. Mm. Half of his letters are written to political leaders to bring about reformation in their communities. And so those that have retreated into the walls of the church, they're giving up a part of the pastoral work of Calvin. Mm. Now, let's be honest. Most of us are geniuses like Calvin. We live in a very different day. We can't do all of these things. But Calvin brings together, think about it, a catechist, an expositor, a uh, creed writer, a presbyter, a statesman, a missionary leader, and also a, if you will, a representative to the local governments counseling the magistrates. He was all in with all of his gifts to make a difference for Christ. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to touch the world with the truth of the word of God. And so, uh, one time someone made a comment to me, and I, I hope this will come across correctly. He said, you know, you're involved in so many things. I've looked at your life. And one day I realized, have you modeled yourself after Calvin? <laughs> <laughs> I said, wow, what a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm so far short of Calvin, but I realized he was all in to touch the world for Christ. And it didn't matter what area, if he had a gift to give or a movement to and I wish we had more pastors that had that sense. I want to get my church involved in everything with the word of God to change the world for the glory of my king. 
my Savior, Jesus Christ. So that comment was not made because I'm a Calvin, but it's because I, I see in Calvin a role model to say, why do you say that's not my job? Hmm. You might say, I don't have gifting here, but who does? How can I motivate some? Because the gospel touches all of life. So in a certain sense, while Calvin didn't say it as Kuiper did, that every square inch belongs to the King Jesus, he did say that Christ is the Lord of everything. And so he wanted Christ's lordship to be seen in its fullness in all spheres of life. You, you painted a really compelling picture of Calvin, both theologically in terms of his views of the Eucharist, his political theology, his um, his covenant theology, uh, even I mean pastorally in terms of his his emphasis on saving souls. His he cared about missions. He cared about personal formation. Brian and I are doing a series on Calvin on the Christian life, and we're just we're taking him back at how just all of Calvin's really penetrating insights about virtue and sanctification and and his, his critiques of pursuing wealth and pursuing the indulgent lifestyles. And Calvin is this really multifaceted, compelling figure. So what what happened? How is it that this, this great mind, this great pastor has been sort of reduced to this one doctrine that is predestination? And what... Yeah. I mean, do you have thoughts on when that happened, why it happened? Why is it that the neo-reformed movement, when you tell someone you're a Calvinist today, what they think of is, well, this person believes in predestination. And that's yeah. it's such such an impoverished deflation view. Beer. And likes beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think uh well, first of all, Calvin made plenty of enemies by being as intense in his reformation. Mm. You know, there were enemies already in his lifetime. Uh, there were the magistrates didn't like him in some cases. There were the libertines that were out there. The Lutherans hated him because, you know, he was bringing some kind of a deviation from Luther. Uh, and the uh, Catholics hated him. And he was so effective at his movement and it was going everywhere. So you would love to hate this man because you, it, it, it was hard to be neutral about. Let me put it that way. Let's see. So you can take any other figure that's right in the center of, of culture. You see, you, it makes gives you very little room to mm -hmm. be neutral. Either you love him, you hate him. And so over time, because the, I think this is the uh, law of entropy applied to theology, <laughs> we move to the order of greatest chaos and disintegration. Mm. You know, and I think over time, uh, the Calvinism had to be codified because it's so vast. You can't mm -hmm. teach it all. Mm -hmm. Nobody can duplicate what Calvin did. Basic came close, but you know, you, there's only, it's a moment in time. And so you begin to solidify and you concentrate. And I think, so as reformed orthodoxy takes root, they're going to have their key doctrines. They're going to defend and develop. And then as enlightenment comes along and they want to be released from biblical authority toward just human authority, mm -hmm. going back to Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I can doubt everything, but I can't doubt myself. Mm -hmm. I am. Once you have that egocentric view of epistemology, well, then the last thing you want is some authority from Calvin mm -hmm. or from the Reformation or from Roman Catholicism. So the enlightenment begins to push against all of that tradition. And so as they gain more and more uh, centrality in the thinking of the West, uh, Calvin becomes an easy person to attack because he's authoritarian. He's forcing the Bible. And he burned Servetus at the stake. Look at yeah. him. You don't want that. You want to be free. So it's easy to pigeonhole him as the enemy. But when you take Calvin on his own terms, you discover that is a terrible caricature. Mm. It's such a dis. Uh, distortion but it is true he was a predestinarian but that's not what he spent all his time on yeah he was a biblical christian trying to develop the fullness of christian theology and so to appreciate calvin you have to be sympathetic so there was one of the parts of the enlightenment that's worthy of rethinking i think there was uh one of the uh historians of the reformation and, and the enlightenment period you said you must remember the word verstehen, that is to understand. You cannot go into these viewpoints with your ideology in place, or you're going to totally, you have to enter into their worldview, into their thought, 
and understand it from their perspective. Now, you may utterly hate it, but you need to learn to think. And, you know, of course, that's what makes for great debate anyway, when you can debate both sides of the argument. Hmm. And I think what we've done is that uh, we've allowed the enemies of Calvin to get away with uh, reductionism rather than saying, you know what? You can't do that with any thinker. They're far more complex. You need to be honest about it. Calvin was not just Servetus. That's one little blip in a life that's still changing the world to this day. Mm-hmm. If it was Servetus, he could never change. How did he become so influential? You got to get back into understanding who he was, what he thought, and his thinking. So I think, you know, obviously uh, the uh, Christian philosophical leadership in the West uh, went through the uh, death by suicide through the Enlightenment. As we embraced Schleiermacher, as we embraced uh, Protestant liberalism, well, you know, the thinking capacity of Christianity has been reduced to a very, very small scale. Mm. And so they get away with it. Mm. But as we become better educated and we begin to engage, we can say, yeah, attack Calvin for Servetus. But have you considered what he did with the magistrates of Geneva, where he said, I'm ready to die, then let you have this right? He was beginning to establish freedom. Right. Do you realize that they were wrestling with the ideas of conscience? Well, you know, human rights in the in the uh, highest courts of the world, if the United Nations, they talk about the rights of God. You know where that, that has Calvinistic roots. And so in other words, you you can begin to force people to say, okay, I can't define Calvin by but we let them get away with it. And that's our fault. Well, this was a great interview. And hopefully this helps us not let them get away with it. Yeah. So we'll just yeah. refer to this interview <laughs> and to your works to help Good. defend and not even just defend and sort of just, you know, hagiography, just, just, you know, a, a, a pristine view of John Calvin, but a real view, understanding he's multifaceted, that oftentimes history is a little more complicated than we make it. And that, uh, Man, there's all that. Let's be let's be full orbed Calvinists mm. that would make Calvin proud. Yeah, and if if I can say it carefully, uh, every human being is a sinner. They're fallen, and we can't have a hagiography unless we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. There's no true saint that's perfect. We can celebrate his gifts, but we have to have the ability to step back and say. Look, his exegesis here was is inadequate. Yeah. Look, he didn't get religious liberty right. Right. Yeah. He may have pushed some things harder than he should have. Yeah. That's okay. We can do that and still really honor this man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I, I love that. And of course, that's a very biblical spirit. You know, you remember the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scripture daily to see if Paul was really teaching them the Bible. That's amazing. That's in the book of Acts. They said, Paul, they're checking him out. Yeah. Well, that's what we need to do with all teachers. So everything I've just said, that's that's my understanding. I could be quite wrong. I'm glad to be critiqued. I don't like to be critiqued. But <laughs> my challenge is go back and look at Calvin. I've tried to give him a fair take. And uh, I call myself a Calvinist as modified by American Presbyterianism. Mm. I'm not a Calvinist fully, mm. but I don't know of anyone else who had such genius and gifts at such a strategic moment to leave such an extraordinary impact. Hmm. That had to be providential, in my opinion, because he was able to pick up all of the great work of Luther, and then as a scholar, as a legal-minded person, and then given the freedom to do this. Wow, it's, it's an extraordinary moment in time. So hate Calvin all you want, but you really need to understand what he said, because the shadow of Calvin is all over Western civilization. Hmm. Wow. It's a great line. Yeah. It's a great line. Dr. Wilbeck, thank you so much for joining us. This is a fascinating okay. interview. Well, thank you for so letting much. me pontificate as a Protestant on my one of my favorite topics. <laughs> oh, we love it. it was we super, love it. Super insightful. Really regret, really great great insights. And it's just it's nice to put flesh on this one person that we've, you know, kind of deflated. And it's better to get a, a good sense of who he actually was. Yeah. So I think a good homework assignment for your listeners would be before you criticize Calvin too much, I dare you to read through the Institutes carefully. Mm. And when you're done, you're going to come away and say, love or hate this man. He was utterly brilliant. Uh, His book, the Institutes, actually created the modern French language. He was he was putting 
into ideas. Like, they hate Calvin in, in France, but they have to admit his linguistic skills have left a permanent mark on their nation. And uh, but he's everywhere. So, well, thank you. God bless you. It's an honor to share this time with you. And I hope the Lord will continue to encourage your work. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you guys for listening in. Uh, you heard it here. The president of Westminster Seminary has given you a homework assignment. Go make sure you understand Calvin for yourself and appreciate <laughs> this conversation. Please make sure you leave a review for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. Go to our website, that'llpreach.io, and uh, let us know. Give us some feedback. Let us know if you want us to cover any topics. We'd love to get in touch with you guys. You can send us a DM on Instagram. And please feel free to share this. Share this with your friends if they're interested in the Reformation, if they're just getting to Calvin. Hopefully this will be a good resource for you. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>